0: You have the scriptures. Let's turn in them to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel chapter nine. And we'll be reading verses fourteen through verses through verse seventeen. Matthew nine verse fourteen through seventeen. Matthew's Gospel chapter nine verse. 14, uh, before we read God's Word, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help to us. Our Heavenly Father, once again we come pleading to You that You would turn our hearts to You, that You would grant us Your Word and not remove it from us, and You would speak to us, even through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And You would grant to us a greater love, And communion with Your Son, that we would depend upon Him, and trust Him, and turn to Him in all things. Now, Father, for our hearing, Father, we pray that You would give us ears to hear and eyes to see Jesus Christ, Your Son, and Father, work through Your servant, that none of us here would hear Him, but hear You, since He is an ambassador of You and so must speak your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 9, and verse 14. These are God's words. Then came to Him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break and the wine runneth out and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. Those are God's words. We do not know exactly when in timing this occurred, what happens in the passage before us, but we do know that it is important under the inspiration of God that it is placed where it is, here, as the questioning of Jesus' disciples and their fasting, when in the previous passage we see Jesus and the disciples feasting with publicans and sinners. But John the Baptist, his disciples thought of him differently. We find in the Scriptures a contrast with him, though not a contradiction. Remember John... The Baptist was the last prophet before Christ, as it says in Matthew 11. It says, "...But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. For John came, that's John the Baptist, "...for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath a devil." The Son of Man came, that's Jesus, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. And so there was, we know, a, a contrast between the practice of John the Baptist compared to Jesus, the Son of Man. Jesus had been eating with publicans. And sinners, and now the disciples of John, come and say, after the practice of John before he was in prison, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? And for our understanding of this passage, we have to understand that the Pharisees had stated fasts. Luke eighteen, the Pharisee there is it said of him that he fasted twice a week, which was the practice of the Pharisees. The old permanent appointed fasting day in the Old Testament before Christ was sacrificed, under the ceremonial law, which Christ sacrifice his sacrifice has done away with was the day of atonement. But the Pharisees had their own stated fast outside of Scripture on a regular basis. Fasting, though, is given by the Lord only to be occasional. That is, not from uh, occasional, not from time to time, but based on an occasion, based on a particular circumstance that warrants fasting. Fasting, generally speaking, is intended to signify mourning and sorrow over our sin or to encourage us, To really mourn over our sin when we're struggling with that. uh, To mourn those emotions that we have to have. While focusing the mind and the heart on prayer to the Lord. We want to consider something that's not Scripture, but which we consider to be the teaching of Scripture. From the Westminster Directory of Public Worship... And if you have questions, again, this is not Scripture, but if you have questions about where we find this in Scripture, later you can ask. But it says there, There is no day commanded in Scripture to be kept holy under the Gospel, but the Lord's Day, which is the Christian Sabbath. Festival days, vulgarly called holy days, having no warrant in the Word of God, are not to be continued. Nevertheless... It is lawful and necessary upon special emergent occasions to separate a day or days for public fasting or thanksgiving, as the several eminent and extraordinary dispensations of God's providence shall administer cause and opportunity to His people. And then later it says, when some great and notable judgments are either inflicted upon a people or apparently imminent or by some extraordinary provocations notoriously deserved, as also when some special blessing is to be sought and obtained. Public, solemn fasting, which is to continue the whole day, is a duty that God expecteth from that nation or people. Now those, again, those two paragraphs I just read, are not in the Scripture, but they're based upon the Scripture's teaching. That which then is true of public fasting is true of private fasting. That normally private fasting should be done in response to a particular providential circumstance or occasion. But here, contrary to the Scripture's teaching, the Pharisees had made it a set day or days and made it into a routine, or we would call it today a tradition. And yet we know the Lord Jesus, in Matthew 6, He does not condemn fasting. Fasting is good at the appropriate time. Fasting is condemned as a merit, or for, if you do it for merit, before God. You come, you fast to uh, create some standing before God. And yet it is encouraged as a godly Christian duty, in times where there should be sorrow and grief over sin, and as an aid to prayer. And we've uh, talked about or heard about fasting previously and how to do that. Acts 13, it says, As uh, this presbytery at Antioch ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. There is an occasion because a serious matter was occurring, the setting apart of Paul and Barnabas to ministry, to serve uh, as missionaries. And so they fasted, and they prayed for them. And then they laid their hands on them, and they sent them out to serve. And here, fasting used as an encouragement to greater prayer for those two men. The Pharisees, though... In contrast to the Scripture's um, teaching on fasting, the Pharisees, though, made it a set routine as an outward show, a platform to show their self-righteousness, not an occasional, or based on an occasion, an occasional response to divine providence. What is providence, kids? You remember hopefully? Providence, God's works of providence, are his most holy wise and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. It's our permanent duty to, as Christians, it's our permanent duty to mark God's providences, to consider what He's doing and respond to it appropriately, sometimes with thanksgiving, sometimes fasting, sometimes uh, and rejoicing in God's glory and continuing to serve Him. And so we need to be observant of God's providence. What is God doing in the world? And that is to put it even more simply, kids, uh, what is God's providence? What is uh, the Lord in charge over? What is God in charge of? What is He sovereign over? He says in the, the catechism question that many of you, or a few of you kids have memorized, everything, right? Everything. Everything. He's in charge over. He is. In, he's sovereign over all things, every single person, right, and all of their actions, everything that happens, everything that comes about in our lives in the world. The Lord is sovereignly decreed to come about. Does that mean we can do whatever we want, or that it doesn't matter what we do? No, absolutely not. There is responsibility that we all have uh, to God. And we've heard that many times. Does that mean uh, then, in this context, uh, it means, excuse me, uh, it means in this context, uh, and we're taught that we should seek to take notice of what the Lord is doing, take notice of His sovereign hand, to tremble at His threatenings, to rejoice in His blessings? This is a permanent moral duty. And to see those blessings, we would respond how? With thanksgiving. But we have to see the blessings. We have to see what God has done in answer to our prayer that we would then respond to Him with thanksgiving. The same with fastings. We have to see the great turmoil that the church is in or the great calamity our nation is in or the the great state of our uh, someone's uh, soul or body in the church. And we would respond with fasting. Well, we have to see those things. We have to consider those things. And so fasting is an occasional response to the word and the providence of God. And that's a very long introduction to what fastings are and what to have some understanding of the Pharisees here, what John's disciples are talking about. But now the first point this morning is the blessedness of union with Christ. The blessedness of union with Christ with Jesus Christ. Verse 14, it says, Then came to Him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? And you compare that with verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto His disciples, Why eateth your Master with publicans and sinners? And so in verse 11... The Pharisees complain to Christ, or excuse me, they complain of Christ to his disciples. The Pharisees are complaining of Christ to his disciples. Verse 14 John's disciples come complaining to Christ of his disciples. They're complaining to Christ of his disciples. You see that? Men complain about Christ to his disciples, and they complain to Christ about His disciples. They complained that Christ ate with publicans and sinners. And they complained that His disciples did not fast like the Pharisees and, and John's disciples. And so friends, what a blessed thing it is to be united to Jesus Christ. What a blessed thing to be united to Him, to be conformed to Him of one heart with Him. That we would have more of this, friends. More of that. Verse 14 and verse 11. That we could bear the reproaches of Christ and know the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death, as the Scriptures say. Let it be that we would be conformed to Christ's cause, united to Him, and therefore contend for that which is Christ and uphold that which is Christ that we might endure the reproaches only for His sake. We're persecuted for Christ's sake, for the righteousness' sake, right? 1 Peter 2, For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even here unto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow His steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth. So let us stand for what belongs to Christ, looking upon the things which are Jesus Christ. Jesus' love for His people. He loves His people with a deep and everlasting love. He takes them into union with Himself. They are one with Christ, Christ in them. That's what John 17 is all about. As the, the Jesus is, in one, uh, is one with His Father, so we are one with Him and the Father. He pays all their debts to God. He supplies all their daily need. He sympathizes with them in all their troubles. He bears with all their infirmities and does not reject them for a few weaknesses. As we see uh, here, He's u- uh, showing that union with them. He's not rejecting them when the, the John's disciples come to Him and they question the disciples and what they're doing. And now they have their weaknesses. They're sinners. But He doesn't reject them for those few weaknesses. He stands with them. He regards them as part of Himself. Those who uh, persecute and injure them as persecuting Him the glory that He has received from His Father, they will one day share with Him. And where He is, they also shall be. Such are the privileges of all true Christians. By faith you will have the same. Even that God joins our poor, sinful souls to one precious husband. Those whom God thus joins together shall never be put asunder or separated or divided. What a blessed thing to be so associated with Jesus Christ that men complain to them of Him and to Him of them. A the second point this morning, the blessedness of Christ, our defender. The blessedness of Christ... Our Defender, verse 15. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. Christ takes up the disciples' cause. For they were not fasting often, nor should they have been fasting. Why? Because... He did not require it of them. These criticisms uh, from John's disciples were criticisms against Jesus Christ. Because they were His disciples. That He did not, and therefore they did not, conform to the Pharisees' practices. Jesus takes up their cause and rebukes their critiques. And why is that? Because the disciples of John were attacking the least of these His brethren. And so, what does He do? He stands with his the least of His brethren. He stands with them. And that is a great comfort. Jesus takes up their cause. And here is Jesus essentially saying what He said to Saul of Tarsus. Why hast thou persecuted Me? Why do you do this? Jesus stands with His disciples and against the attack upon them, which was also an attack upon Himself, because He's doing what? He's not fasting. He's feasting. And so His attack upon Himself. He did so even though His disciples were poor, feeble, weak, inconsistent, sinful disciples. As we read through the Gospels, we see that His disciples often struggled in sin and weaknesses. And uh, probably the most would be Peter, his denial, the three denials of Christ, as well as Paul, who is persecuting him. The, those who are called out the most, and Thomas, who doubts even after Christ is risen from the dead. And we could go on and on. They were far from what they should be, just like all of us. Far from what we should be. Yet Christ owns them as His. He owns their correct practice. Here they have a correct practice, not fasting. They should be feasting because Christ is there and that's what we're being taught in the passage. I think most of you can see that clearly from the passage. He owns their correct practice. That which was right in them, He owns. And so friends, therefore you should not be ashamed of any of Christ's brethren. Those who are... Uh, His, that He owns, as as He owns you, whom He died for, be not ashamed of them. We stand with them for what is true and right. Even when they believe in certain things that are not right, and their practices are not in line with Christ, where it seems they have many weaknesses where they are sticking to the truth and they are practicing that which is right and proclaiming that which is right, even the Gospel, then we stand with them, right? Doesn't matter if they're... We could, as Reformed Presbyterians, we might think they're a little crazy. But they preach the Gospel, we stand with them in that. Because we're united in Christ. And so we're to stand with those who are Christ for that which is true and right. Right? Let there be no snobbery in you or pride in you as if you could, if you can't, like, like, as if you can't associate with them because they might have a different, uh, belief about certain things. Not dealing with the gospel particularly or specifically. Christ didn't himself. He did not. He didn't, he wasn't ashamed of them. He was not ashamed even to sit with publicans and sinners. Nor with his disciples. He stood with his own faithful, or excuse me, his own feeble band of disciples against their detractors. And so, friends, never forget that. Never forget that. Never forget that, friends, today when you're attacked as well, that you have a great defender. A great defender who stands with you. And he reigns sovereign. King over all. It's a great defender to have. Over the heavens and the earth, you are in great hands, Christian. Even now as our King sitting on a throne, He owns the cause of His people. He owns that you do what you do, friends. When you do it righteously in love for Him and for His glory, he's, He's the cause of it. It is His grace Uh, that enables you by the Spirit to do it, to practice righteousness, and He will never disown you when you stand for His rights and His cause and His prerogatives and His honor in this world. From heaven, He governs all things for the sake of His church. Revelation 5, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that's Jesus, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. The Lord Jesus, in other words, executes the Father's good pleasure in the interest of His church, His bride, for His bride in this world. In Zechariah 1, there's the vision of uh, the man in the midst of the myrtle trees in the bottom, like in the bottom of a valley, or in the darkness it's called. Uh, The myrtle trees, weak and feeble, but Christ... It shows in that passage, Christ is in the midst of the myrtle trees. He is in the midst of His people who are weak and even, uh, we might say like Psalm 23, in the valley of the shadow of death. He's there and He's with them and He stands with His people. What a blessing this to have Christ as our as your defender. Is He your defender? That's another question. Is He your defender? Or do you rely on someone else or something else? Maybe on yourself. Maybe you don't think you have a defender. One who will stand with you. Well, one is freely offered unto you this very day, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, turn unto Him by faith from your sins and He will defend you. He'll be yours, you'll be in union with Him. And He'll be His. Because the third point, the great danger being against Christ. The great danger being against Christ. Verse 14 again. Again, it says, Then came to Him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? So John's John's disciples by this time, it's a little hard to say, but probably they should have been not existing anymore as a group. John's imprisonment is in Matthew chapter 4. John's beheading, It is in Matthew chapter 14. We don't really know the timings uh, here of this passage, but let's, uh, you know, he's in prison. John's ministry as the last Old Testament prophet before Christ was found in testifying about Christ. And so remember what John the Baptist was testifying. He's talking about Christ, he's preaching Christ, and that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we ought to repent and turn to Christ. And John 3, it says, And John also was baptizing in Anon, near to Selim, because there was much water there. And they came and they were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, He that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, that's Jesus, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly, because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's disciples probably should not be existing as a group anymore. They should have gone to Christ. And so we ought to be reminded here that That Christ is referred there as the passage we just read, as the bridegroom, as he is here. And so, isn't it interesting that the disciples of John then come, would then come and be more identified with the Pharisees than with John, who identified himself with Christ? These disciples of John perhaps had no leader anymore. Their leader was John, in which their leader should have been Christ all along. And so these disciples of John actually had a very low view of Jesus Christ. They had a low view of Jesus Christ. They should have submitted completely to Christ, like John who said of Jesus, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. We don't know the exact intent of John's disciples here. The Pharisees, we know, were malicious in their intent. John's disciples uh, could have been genuine, could have not been. They could have been more like the Pharisees. We don't know. But they do go to Jesus Himself, where the Pharisees would go to the disciples of Jesus. In verse 11. But either way, they still have a low view of Jesus Christ. They have a low view of Christ and a high view of their traditions and customs. Well isn't that like the church sometimes friends or a lot of the time that we see today how to be faithful to Jesus. It is so difficult for those churches that have such uh, have so become immersed in the various customs and traditions because they have a low view of Christ that in turn and have uh, that to turn and then have a high view of Christ means the putting off of those traditions and customs altogether. These disciples of John routinely fasted, we learn. That's what they're saying here in verse 14. They routinely fasted. They were much like the Pharisees in their current practice while John was in prison. They declare about themselves, their union with the Pharisees in fasting, and they were Regular fasters, often fasting. But what about their union with Christ? What about their union with Jesus Christ? Because here they, their quarrel with Christ is not in defense of God's word or the Lord's appointment or what He's instituted, but their normal practice. That's what they're arguing as their foundation. That's what they're arguing from their traditions, their customs. This is what we do. This is what we've been doing. And so what, what does that mean? When we hold forth to the traditions of man against Christ. Well, they were aligning themselves with the enemies of Christ, the Pharisees. This is something very terrible. Men claiming to be John's disciples should end up, that they should end up standing with the Pharisees quarreling with Christ concerning his disciples. But this is often repeated, isn't it? This is, there are those who are true Christians who align themselves with those who are obviously not Christians in this world. All the time. They align themselves against their brethren. Against their brethren! And against Christ. Out of misguided zeal, For that which is not truth, not based upon the truth, and have no biblical principle at all in them. What a tragedy that is. When in the church, there are so many who align with the enemies of Christ rather than with the disciples of Christ. Those who profess Christ, perhaps even true Christians, found aligning themselves with those who are not God's people against those who are God's people. And so we need to ask the question, what side are you on? What side are you on? Whose side are you on? Whose side would you like to be on? Christ's side or another side? There are only ever two sides. One is Christ's side, and everything else is the other side. Never stand for anything that you cannot show to be biblical. From the Scriptures, lest you should end up on the wrong side against Jesus Christ. This happens in the churches all the time, sadly. Christian people aligning with ungodly people against their brethren. And that should never happen. What Christ did and what He taught His disciples to do should have been viewed as automatically right. Look at what Christ is doing. He's feasting with the publicans and sinners. We should view that automatically as right. We might have questions of why that is, how it should be done. Stands the reason, though, that it must be right. Because Christ is doing it, and everything He does is righteous and without sin. And here is disciples under Christ, with Christ, and He's not rebuking them. And what are they doing? They're feasting. They're not fasting. Then that's right. It's automatically right. The same thing we see throughout the, the Scriptures that the Lord approves of. Whatever He approves of is automatically right and good. Never mind the Pharisees. Never mind what the many traditions there are in the church even today. What Christ appointed must be right. The true people of God must rally under Christ's authority as King. And His final absolute authority. Authority That of His Word. So do not be found, friends, on the side against Christ, for there is their great danger. Fourthly, the presence of Christ. The presence of Christ, verse 15. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. No man putteth a piece of new cloth under an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. There is here presented in those... Verses 15 through 17 by Jesus. Three illustrations to prove one point. Three illustrations. An illustration, in the illustration, in each of the illustrations, there is an incompatibility. An incompat- incompatibility. That is, kids, since you don't know what incompatibility means, two things that don't go together. They don't mix. They don't work well together. Like putting like when you were a little kid and you had the I think it's like the at least the old toy, the circular globe and it has the 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 star block you can put in the star hole and the round block you can put in the round hole. And you're trying the incompatibility is the block which is square goes can't go in the round hole. That's an incompatibility, right? It doesn't work. And so here's a situation presented. It asked if could happen could this happen and it is with the answer that it would be so odd for this to happen it doesn't fit with the situations incompatible that these men who are the friends of the bridegroom would be mourning that doesn't make any sense at all they're supposed to be promoting the joyful celebration of the marriage and they would mourn and fast no that's absurd the other two illustrations are are similar They show forth also this incompatibility, this inappropriateness. The friends of the bridegroom don't mourn and fast. Verse 15, this is a marriage feast, right? The same, a piece of new cloth. Take a patch, a new cloth. If it's sewn on to make a patch for a garment that's old and it's ripped and there's a hole in the garment, like a pair of blue jeans, we might think, and you're trying to patch those blue jeans. Well, if they're old... Uh, They're well-worn, they're stretched out already. And so a strong new piece, if you were to sew that into the garment, a strong new piece will tear the weaker, frail, older garment. And so would you use a new cloth, verse 16, to sew up a tear in an old garment? The answer? An obvious? No, you wouldn't do that. It doesn't work. It's incompatible. It makes it worse. Verse 17, the same thing. With the new and old bottles or the new and old wine skins. New wine that's like uh, fresh off the grape vine and crushed. As soon as it's crushed, it begins to ferment. Right, And as it ferments, the wine does what? It expands. Just like a bread with yeast in it, it expands. Same thing. The wine expands as it's fermenting. And so if you put new wine into an old wine skin that's already been stretched out previously from wine that was in it before because the fermentation process and the wine is expanding as it's in there, the new wine will expand and stretch that old wineskin. It would do what? It would break. Now if the new wine were put into a new wineskin, then that new wineskin would be able to handle that expansion and stretching. And so would you put new wine into an old wineskin? Again, absolutely not. You would not. It's absurd to do that. Because you'd ruin all your wine. It'd be on the ground. The wineskin itself would be broken. It's incompatible. That inappropriateness, that incompatibility, is the idea Jesus is communicating through those three illustrations. Christ was present with His disciples as the bridegroom. He had come to seek and to save that which was lost. He had come as the one, Psalm 118, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. He was the headstone of the corner. He was the messenger of the covenant who had come to his temple and therefore rejoicing, not mourning. Rejoicing was the correct response. Feasting was the response, not fasting. Christ was present with them. They would have caused to mourn when they're when Jesus, their Jesus, was removed from them, when He ascended and He's now ex- exalted, right? But when even that morning, even that morning when He is ascended, even that morning would be turned to joy by the coming of another one, the great comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom He would send in His name. Now, fasting is a great Christian duty, and it is very helpful to us. But did they, but did they hear, not grasp the very truth that the Messiah, the coming one, the great deliverer, was in their very presence? What we would not give to feast with him if he were here? I would, you would, would you be fasting? You'd go all off by yourself, fasting while he's here? No way. You're feasting with him. It's incompatible. This was great cause to rejoice, not mourning. mourning. It was incompatible for the disciples, even John's disciples, to mourn in fasting, because they should have been feasting as they rejoiced in the presence of Jesus with them. And here it was, that they should have been grasping the providence of God's plan, as we're to do in everyday life. For all that old form of worship was about to be done away with at the cross. At the final sacrifice of Christ. So that even the set day of fasting, on the day of atonement, would be done away with. For there is no more day of atonement. Because everything the day of atonement looked forward to is fulfilled in Christ at His final sacrifice there on the cross. And so that even our, our celebrating the Lord's day, His atonement, His resurrection... The Gospels, promises, on the Lord's Day, we feast on Him. We rejoice in Him because this is a great day. This is a day we have rest in our souls. Why? Because we are present with Jesus Christ as our hearts are spiritually lifted up to Him as Hebrews teaches us. The Lord's Day is not a day of fasting, but a day of feasting. Because on the Lord's Day, especially on that day, The Lord in Christ meets with His people by that great Comforter, the Holy Spirit. The Redeemer was there in their presence, and therefore they should have rejoiced. When He was taken away, then that would be a time of mourning and fasting, when the time was appropriate or the occasion was right. It's the presence of Christ. Because... He is now exalted that the old complex forms of worship have been done away with. Now in Christ, we are privileged to engage the Lord according to His command to worship Him in simplicity. Simple worship, not complex. Why simple worship? Because Christ is at the right hand of the Father exalted, and so we do what? We have no more priests, because Christ is our great high priest. We have no more altar because Hebrews teaches us the altar is Christ. Christ is our altar. We have no more sacrifices. He was the final sacrifice. We have no incense to offer because He's our incense. We have no more Levitical choirs or instruments of music because Christ is exalted. Are you ever then, as you think of simple worship, which by God's grace I think we have, are you ever ashamed of the simple form of worship? It's amazing. We can take this order of worship and you can flip it all around and do whatever order you want to do it in, and it's still simple. Doesn't matter. Because God commands us to sing, praises to Him in worship. He calls us to pray, He calls us to read the Word, hear the Word, preach the Word, perform or celebrate the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Simple worship. It can be in any order you want. Doesn't matter. But are you ever ashamed of our simple form of worship? A simple form that Jesus commands. And if you are, then shame on you. Because simple biblical worship as appointed by the Lord for the church in these days is that which is compatible with the fact that Christ has come, died, rose, ascended, and is now seated as the mediatorial king on the throne forever. There are many churches based on their low view of Christ and their high view of traditions who have made the worship of God incredibly complex. They attempt to reintroduce or to mimic Old Testament temporary ceremonial worship that Christ has done away with, as well as being contrary to God's Word and unauthorized. They cast a shadow on the truth They cast a shadow on the truth that Christ has come, and He died, and He is now risen. This simple worship is compatible with Christ at the right hand of God. It's compatible with His being King, and Priest, and Prophet. We have it here only by His grace, nothing to be... Prideful in nothing that we have done to deserve it, but that is something to fast. Is that, is that something to fast over to mourn over in the state of the church that they have such a low view of Christ and therefore a high view of tradition, which goes together, a high view of their customs, and you see it in many churches. That is something to fast over. Error. And false teaching stems from wrong and, inadequ- and, and excuse me, error. And false teaching stems from wrong and inadequate views of Jesus Christ, or low views of Jesus Christ. Always connected in some way to the inadequate, wrong, low views of Christ. These disciples of John they quarreled because of inadequate views of Christ. The Pharisees did it because they hated Christ. John's disciples' view of Christ was poor. All error and doctrine and practice uh, is connected in some way with not thinking highly enough of the Lord Jesus Christ. In accordance with the scriptures. And that's why these quarrels arose. That's and there's still these things in the church and in the world today. Friends, let's take and develop A high view of Jesus Christ, how? By being in His Word, by praying, at particular times fasting, if we were to do that, on occasion, if the occasion is right, and studying His Word, meditating upon His Word. And as we begin uh, to do that, it will become clear of who He is more and more, in order that we would then avoid much error and sin, and we would worship Him in the right way according to His Word. As he has instituted, it is no coincidence, friends, that the clearest statements of biblical truth and biblical practice come from those ages in the church where godliness, faith in Jesus Christ, his love, love for him, were at the highest. It's not a matter of brains, though some of those men had are very intelligent. Were very intelligent. It was a matter of godliness and seeing Christ as who he was, who he is, the greatest in his preeminence and his being above and beyond all as a sovereign king and priest and prophet. They had a high view of Christ. Let's read, you know, certain men. You could see their high view of Christ and therefore they had a high view of his word and they had a high view of his worship and they had a high view of the church. Friends today, what do you think of Jesus Christ? Well turn today. In faith and repentance, call upon his name for salvation, he will receive you. And you can have union with him. You too can have what the the poor sinful soul uh, has, who are who are who is joined to Christ their husband. You can have exactly that uh, his promise that those who are joined together with Him shall never be cast out. Blessed are those that believe on Jesus Christ and His having the first place over all and who follow Him, not tradition or custom. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for Your Word. We know that it is likely that we have traditions and customs here. We pray that those things would be mortified and put to death that we would follow after Christ. And so give us a greater love for Christ. Give us a greater uh, love for who He is, what He's done, and what He commands, that we might put off those sinful errors even in our worship in the church, in our lives, and we would follow after Christ alone. Knowing that when we stand upon Him and His Word, that He will stand with us. And so, Father, grant us that great blessing, these blessings, and bring us home at the right time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.